You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You with Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's uh, a great pleasure to meet one of the wonderful ladies of New Zealand and New Zealand politics. And I thought I'd ask you to come on a show to share some of her life with us and in particular to tell her, tell us about her life in local politics. In the South Island, she's known as Margaret Murray. When I first met um, Margaret Murray, she was the chairperson of the Waimari... Chairman. Chairman. Oh, can't say person. No. Chairman of the Waimari District Council. She's still on the council here in Tauranga, where she's known as Margaret Murray Benj. And it's my great pleasure, Margaret, to have you along to our show. Thank you, Rodney. It's even a bit better than that because we're not talking on Zoom. We're actually talking side by side. You've had me over here for lunch. And it was absolutely lovely. And may I say, I don't know if you're allowed to comment on um, a woman's appearance these days, but I always remember meeting you when you were chairman. And you would walk you would sweep into a room magnificently. You were such a charismatic and perfectly dressed woman and very, very commanding. And it's so lovely to see you now. You still are. Thank you, Rodney. Where does that um, awareness and care of your appearance come from? Did you always have it? Was it instilled in you by your parents? I'm not sure. I It's just something that you did. Being an only woman, second woman to be elected to Waimari District Council, um, there was you had to compete with the men, and so you dressed appropriately. And that was not looking all that male, but looking like I was a woman. But presumably you looked, you were elegant and well-dressed before you were a councillor, or did it come with the territory? I think you, for a woman, she dresses for the occasion. So if I'm playing tennis, which I did, um, then you would wear tennis gear. Mm. And if you were going to a meeting, you would get out of your gardening gear and you'd go looking as professionally as you could because of the professional environment you were in. Well, I can say, Margaret, there's never any doubt that you're a woman, 100%. Um, now, tell us, where, did, where were you born? I was born in, in Dunedin, and we lived on the Tyree Plain, right next door to where the Mamona Airport is today. There's a ditch separating the uh, airport from the leasehold farm that my mum and dad had, and we were there till I was about nine and a half. And I go back now and I can tell you who lived on the various roads and where they lead to and where the Mangatuas are. There are not many people who will know where the Mangatuas, but that lot runs along the side of the Tyree Plain. And there was no airport then? No airport, no. So did Dunedin have an airport? Um, they would have had Tyree, and that, of course, was a training base. I know my husband, Dougie, he was actually trained, uh, did training at uh, the Tyree Airport. Go to heck. Is but that... it wasn't a commercial place. And you grew up in Dunedin? Mm, uh, we grew, we left there and moved to Dunedin. I went to Arthur Street Primary School, and I was a prefect there, by the way. And That does not surprise me. And then... We moved to Balclutha when my dad uh, and I went to Otago Girls. I hadn't been at Otago Girls long, just a few months, and dad got a job in the forecourt of Otago Motors in Balclutha. My mother grew up in Balclutha, so they were quite they were both quite happy to actually move there. And I went to South Otago High School, which I enjoyed, and my sister refused to, and she at 15 would not go. But I can remember in a French lesson weeping because I couldn't understand a word the teacher was saying. But you adjust, and in life, change makes us adjust. So then after several years, uh, we moved back to Dunedin when Dad was farm manager at the Eventide Home Farm, mm -hmm. just down from Larnix Castle. And so for my 17th birthday, 
I was able to take my friends from school up in the back of the farm truck to Larnick's Castle, and this boozy fellow opened the door, and there was no way we could go in. And I go back today, and it's this beautiful environment. And it wasn't so beautiful then? No, no. It was run down? Yes, very definitely. So mm. anyhow, and I went to teacher's college there, and I... um. By the way, in Balclutha, I was playing good tennis, starting two, and I reached the top of the South Otago ladder, and we started to play tournaments. My holidays were always at Kaka Point, beautiful, beautiful Kaka Point. And last night, I was listening to, we went to the jazz concert, and Roger Fox was there, and he is famous globally. Well, he grew up in Gore, no, and no, guess no. where he had his holidays, at Kaka Point. So it's quite a famous place, really. Um, it is. And so, well, I didn't know that about you. Uh, I knew you were a great tennis player, but I didn't know about you growing up way down there. And so how did you make progress to the north, to Christchurch? Mm -hmm. Well, I was uh, after I completed Teachers College, I did my PA at McAndrew Bay. And then I became infant mistress in Clyde because my fiancé was a top dressing pilot, John Murray, and he was working with a well-known pilot called Peter Bevan. And Peter was killed at 7 o'clock one morning at the end of a turnip paddock when he was flying, uh, working, and hit a pine tree and was killed. And John knew there was no future for him in central aviation then. And he came home one day and said, I've got a job ski plane flying at Mount Cook. So we dutifully moved to Mount Cook, summer sportswoman, suddenly living in, in a cooler climate. Uh, six months there, I learned how to, to make bread and I learned how to spin. And we met Kobe Bossard, the wonderful jeweler. And uh, NAC, as it was, put the age limit up. John applied. We got in, and so we moved to Christchurch. We were at Mount Cook for six months, and we were paid three times, and every time we had to ask for it. And we were just a poor couple of young wedding, uh, young couples, and uh, it was really hard going, but we managed. And got to Christchurch. Mm -hmm. And, of course, with uh, John being in aviation, there's really no room for a woman in that and as my children grew, we had our children, and as they grew, I started to play tennis again. And then I concluded I needed to be back in my club, Fendleton Club. Yeah. And you joined Fendleton Club, kids growing up, and you played tennis. Coached at that club. I became the president of the club. And the rumour was out uh, that something would be established on Burnside Park. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. This is where this club should be because we had six courts. We couldn't afford to maintain them. We had a leaking old sort of house for a pavilion. And so the only cocktail function I went to was at Eric Holland's. And I met Eric Holland, Eric the MP, Holland, the MP for Papua Nui, Fendleton. Fendleton. And I met there Jim Russ who was the chairman of the finance committee at Waimari District Council. And he said to me, how's the shift going? And I said, well, we can't because uh, we've discovered we can't close the club down and make the move and expect the club to survive. And he said, oh, come to the council for bridging finance. So I found myself before the council with not another woman in the room. There I am as president of my tennis club, and I have the uh, I had the uh, accountant there, Tony Sparks. I had the lawyer there, Colin Harmon, who never charged charged us a dime, and Peter Yeoman, the engineer. We got our bridging finance, and that's how we got established on Burnside Park. It's one of the best clubs in the country. Yes. Going through a bit of a lull at the moment, but my good friend Barbara Ryan, when she was the junior convener, we had over 60 clubs, 60 children's tennis teams, and just abs lots of parents helping, and it was really great. So that was one of the big things that, that I did 
Um, but I also, I also, when I first moved to Christchurch, I had a knock on the door one day and it was Marie Stewart. Now, who was Marie Stewart? Well, she was a teacher in Balclutha at South Otago High School. And she and her husband had moved to Christchurch. He was a science teacher. And she asked me if I would be prepared to stand for the school committee because they liked to keep two women on the school committee. And I said, well, yes, I could. So anyway, um, I did. And at my first meeting, the acting principal said, very apologetic because we had vandals in at the weekend. Well, I was genuinely upset. He realized that uh, I was hadn't taken it the right way. And he said, oh, we didn't contact you because we didn't want tea. They had a working bee. And I said, I didn't come onto the committee to make the tea. <laughs> and the man next to me, Richard Byers, who was a lecturer at the university and had children at the school, said, bless him to this day, quite right, why wasn't Mrs. Murray contacted? And that was where I learned that you can work with men so well. <laughs> what year was that, Margaret? I've lost track. That would have been in the early 70s. So the idea was you were coming along to make the tea. Mm. That's why they needed two women. No, no, no. They needed two women, and they assumed that if there was a working bee, that a woman would make the tea. And you weren't of the same view? No, I figured that he who had the bad back would make the tea because one thing that we can all do is we can all garden. Yes. So yeah. that wasn't an issue. And I've, I've adopted that. My dad, um, my mother would hate me telling you this, Rodney, but my father was not well educated and he always said, I seen and I done. And that's a sure telling you that uh, that there's a lack of education. He was highly intelligent, and but he never stood up for himself. And so I learned how to stand up. And my dad encouraged me, my mum encouraged me. And parents have an enormous influence on their children's yes. lives just by motivating them and encouraging them. So when I would go out at night, my dad would drop me down at the uh, bus stop so I could catch the bus into town. That's when we lived in Company Bay. So I I had a lovely upbringing. Yeah. And you went from the school board to council. How did that happen? Um, well, establishing on Burnside Park, we had to find a site. And we played Ring-a-Ring-a-Rosie around Burnside Park. And we had a new landscape architect working for the council. I'm not on it, by the way. I'm working for the council. And she wanted to see the club established by the rugby club under the pylons. And I said, we can't go there. Lines above us, lines around us, lines on the ground, a most inappropriate place. We needed to be over by the trees. And when I left there, uh, Rex Cosgrove, who was the recreation officer at the time, said to me, Margaret, why don't you stand for council? We could do with you. And I knew when I worked on trying to find that site, I could do the job as well as any one of the councillors that I met. And so you stood? And so I stood. What year? Uh, 1977. And it wasn't a thing in 1977 for a woman to stand for council? Mm, not in district or counties. More so if you're on a party ticket in the cities, mm. uh, they did more so there. But um, where I was, I remember trying to encourage a woman, a really capable woman to stand. Oh, she said, no, I couldn't do it. You look like a woman and think like a man, Margaret. I couldn't do that. What an interesting observation. Mm. Do you think that's true? Uh, no. I think uh, women, and I love working with women, and there are not enough of them in local government. And uh, and I firmly believe in Article 3 of the treaty that we're all equal. Mm. And I, I expect to be treated equally by any person that I meet. doesn't matter who they are, what walk of life they have. They deserve my respect and my belief in equality. Mm. 
Well, you certainly carried that on in your entire life, Margaret. Um, so you got elected to the council in 1977. Uh, was it a shock? Oh, first of all, tell me about the campaign. How did you campaign in 1977? And how did you campaign as a woman? Oh, just just as a just me. Uh, I asked advice, and I was told you've got to put out a pamphlet. So I had a little flyer made. And my husband, John, uh, helped deliver those. And so that was for the Avonhead riding, as it was known in those days. And so, uh, yes, I put my neck on the line. You had got to take a risk. And got elected. And I was the highest polling candidate that time. I think in all honesty, Rodney, that the the population of Avonhead might have been slightly higher, but I did well, I know that, <laughs> and over 60% of the people voted. So when they say now that people aren't interested in local politics, I think we've been denigrated by central government. They tend to dump on us, they don't work with us, and they think that they know best, and it's just really quite an awful predicament that local government is in at the moment. It is indeed, and we'll come to that, because um, back in those days, uh, you'd know your local councillor, and your local council had a big say, and now you go to see them and you just get gobbledygook and fobbed off because they're literally under the thumb of the central government and the legislative rails through the various acts that council has to comply with. But back in those days, in the 60s and 70s, the councils were very autonomous and they did the things that mattered to us as homeowners because they'd be picking up the rubbish, they'd be running the swimming pool, the hours of the swimming pool, things that actually mattered in the community. And you'd go and see your councillor and you'd helibag them. Yes, and... Um, and then when one became chair of the United Council, you were working with the leaders from all over the zone. Yes. And that was a huge strength. Mm. So after I missed in 89 I, and I was working for Life Education, I knew the men on the West Coast. Mm. I knew whose door to tap on to make sure that we could get help. Yes. And I can remember telling uh, at a social function, telling the fellow who was on the regional council, oh, no, I wouldn't go to them because that's not their role. Well, I offended him and I knew it. So I wrote to him afterwards and said, apologised and asked him if you obviously know a lot more about the West Coast than I do, could I meet with you? And I did. And we made application and they did support us. Great. Now, when you first turned up to council, what was it like? It was all male. It was all male. The girls in the typist room were off to the side. There was one other woman there. Uh, and when I introduced myself to her, she said, oh, it's you. So you never assume that because it's a woman that they're as welcoming as anybody else. Uh, you just got to make sure that you, I was excited, as you can imagine. And more than happy uh, to. Did she think ropes. you were uppity or something that you shouldn't be there? Was that her attitude? I didn't ask. No, it's odd, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, her husband was a very successful businessman, and uh, uh, he has since been knighted. And so, uh, but she was different. And the idea then was, this is men's work. No, I. Oh, when I became chairman, I can remember I had one councillor in Calvert. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you the story. He made it as tough for me as he possibly could. and uh, But I had been well taught. I had gone to, when Melissa was little, she was my third, and I'd gone into the YWCA to join a cane-making class. Why? because they had a creche there. No creches around. You didn't have any help. So I went, but the only creche was available with public speaking. So Melissa and I went into public speaking, <laughs> and there she is on the creche, and I had Doreen Grant, this amazing woman who took the course, and I can remember I uh, 
first speech was gifting a cup to Pauline Holland, a friend at the tennis club. And Mrs. Grant said when I finished, oh, but Mrs. Murray, you were so fast. And anyway, after I finished the course, you then joined Forum Luncheon Club, again under the um, instruction of Doreen Grant. And there I learned how to chair a meeting. I learned how to speak to motions. And uh, and this was all ahead of going into council. Yes, it was. So you were, in a way, surprisingly well prepared. Yes. So dear old Ian, um, he, when he challenged me, I had to stop on standing orders. And if I had a problem, I'd speak to Peter Chappell next to me, the uh, uh, clerk, and we would talk about it and acknowledge either he was right or wrong and move on. You, sitting with you now, you loved it, didn't you? Yes. And then after Ian... Why did you love it? I think it's the cut and thrust of decision-making. And you know that if you're close to the people you represent and they know you and they share their knowledge with you, if you ask them, um, you can come forward with great confidence. And anyhow, um, but when I spoke to this Bishopdale Rotary Club, Ian was the president. This was after he was out of council. And I thought, acknowledge it, Margaret. So I could say how delighted I was to be there. And I really appreciated Ian being president because you taught me so much, Ian. <laughs> I was lucky. <laughs> and it was true. It, it is funny, isn't it? I can remember uh, uh, he wasn't a professor. He was a doctor of science. And he was so tough on me when I would write anything. So extremely tough. And to this day, I never write a word without feeling Henry Connor sitting on my shoulder going, why that word, Rodney? You know, he's reading it to this day and that toughness, uh, which you hated at the time, it's so belittling. And I can remember as an adult leaving his office in tears because he'd so ripped what I'd written to pieces. Um, and if he did a hard job on you, you'd pull out a bottle of scotch and you'd have some whiskey with him and make you feel a bit better. <laughs> but those sort of hard times with people, they do teach you. Yes. They teach you. Uh, they teach you. And I worry these days that we're not, I don't know, that hardness um, is it's like a teacher. The hardest teacher you have is often the best teacher you've ever had. That's a wonderful story. So we got distracted then. So you got to the council. You're the only woman. The woman even in the typist pool was sort of looking at you a bit, ask us what's she doing there. And yet you made an immediate impact. Uh, it's interesting. Just last week uh, we had a forum community I forum. should say to listeners that that was 1977 when Margaret first got elected to council it's 2023. She's still on a council, albeit a different one. You're still a councillor. Um, I don't think there'd be anyone with that length of service that was first elected in 1977. Um, well, let's think about it. So Robert Muldoon was just two years into his prime ministership, um, and you were a councillor. That seems politically a long, long time ago. So you got elected as a woman in 1977, and you're still going on the council, and clearly you still have that enthusiasm for it and that respect and love of your constituents. Oh, a great privilege being in local government because you're close to people. Mm -hmm. And so long as you stay close to them, uh, you can drive the, their needs, and that makes you quite powerful around the table. Making sure that councillors listen is a great challenge, but that's another moment. But just last week, I'm over at a community forum at Pangara, and I'd follow, it won't tell you that story. Uh, there was a young lass there, and she said to me, I think you spoke at my grandfather's funeral. And I said, and her name was Jody, and her maiden name was White. And I knew her mother, Shirley White. 
who is still alive at 90, and she was the receptionist at Waimari District Council when I was there. And lovely woman, she was on the telephone, she knew everything and that was going on, and I'm full of admiration for her. And I knew there was a problem in the family uh, because she only had two children and the son was up in Cambridge. And I don't know why, but his wife, whether she was jealous of Shirley, I don't know. But anyway, Merv, Shirley's husband, loved her dearly. She looked always absolutely gorgeous and, uh, and she was just such a fine woman. And so here I am meeting this child, I, woman. I could have cried because this was the girl and she had been down to meet Shirley and she's going again this coming week. And this is, she's the healer on that family. And so I rang Shirley to say how thrilled I was that I had met her granddaughter. And there she is, 90. Her granddaughter. Her granddaughter whom she hadn't had anything to do with for so long because the mother, I don't know what was wrong with the mother, but didn't want to know them. Mm, gosh, it's sad, isn't it? But that shows you again. And that happens often. Yes, and that shows you again that length of service that you've had. Mm. What councils, and you ended up not just on the Waimere District Council, you became the chairman. In 1983, was it? And so you moved quite fast, Margaret. That was six years later. That's quite fast in local body politics, right? Is it? Well, I have. You came along as a new councillor, a female councillor, and within six years you're running it. Mm. I saw John Lamb the other week when I was in Christchurch, and he said to me, I used to give you advice, and then he said you reached the stage where you would be giving me advice. <laughs> you're fast study. I don't know. But once again, um, understand the issues and work with people. Do you work hard? I think I work as hard as anybody. And I do things that other people won't do. So if someone rings me, I go and see them. Understand the issue, then work with staff as to how it can be resolved. And I've got about three issues at the moment that have been going on before Western Bay was established. And they're historical but someone has got to keep trying to resolve them. And what you, so I'm just trying to follow this, Margaret. You were the chairman. That's when I met you. You came in, I was at university, and you spoke to our university uh, seminar. And I couldn't remember probably any other speaker that year, but you stand out because you were so elegant and charismatic and so powerful in what you had to say it was wonderful I've never forgotten it to this day and I mean I've only caught up with you in the last couple of years and so it's amazing memory for me and it's amazing by the way to blow you blow your trumpet for you that you're still just the same my goodness so you became chairman that would be a full-time plus job right being my chairman brief predecessor used to come to council and he'd have a great pile of papers in front of him and my view was that just wasn't good enough. And when I became the chairman, I had an arrangement with a subdivision man that if he was wanted a signature, you come in regardless of who is there and I will sign it. I trust you. I know you do your homework. And so let's get the community moving as fast as we can. That was what I, one of the things that I did. So you didn't have all the paperwork in front of the council. You slimmed no. them down and took no. charge and got yes. things moving. And I was there full time. Because wow. that was my job. Uh, they, they wanted to debate. It was a pretty divided council. And they wanted to debate whether or not I should have a car or not. And I said, I'll supply my own car, which is what I did. I had a little EMG. Loved it. Oh, that's too. I think that's what might have made me be attracted to you. First up was the MG. You would have driven up in the MG. I'd forgotten that. You drove up in an MG, Margaret. We had a lovely man called Norb Skevington. And he was a um, former postmaster, but I knew he was interested in old cars. And I said to him, what could I buy? Uh, what could I, should I buy? And that would hold its value. And he said, a Morris Minor. Well, I didn't think that was quite me. No, and not, so, and not for the chairman. And then he told me that there was a car out at Belfast that was for sale. And it was this MG, and that's the one I bought. Beautiful car. 
well, John, my husband, used to have to bike to me sometimes because it didn't always go as it should have done. And John Mulligan, who Mulligan, who rang the lo- local garage, he would bike to rescue me sometimes too. <laughs> and let's fast forward now. You're still on council, but you're here in Tauranga on the council. You still clearly love it. What's, what do you see now? What's your role now as a councillor? And I'm in particular speaking to listeners who might be thinking about standing. And I'm a big believer in encouraging people to get involved in politics because if people don't get involved in politics, we actually leave it to the professional politicians who don't have our interests at heart. And the only way politics politics is going to work is if everyday people put their hand up. Is that not right? Yes, that's absolutely true. I, For example, in this last election, uh, we've only had uh, three women last time. We've only got three women on the council this time. Out of how many? Out of 12. Mm. 11 and you've got your mayor. And so I worked hard to get a mayor in whom I knew could be reforming and could stand up uh, for making sure that we were heading in the right direction because the only person we employ as councillors is the chief exec. And the chief exec has to go by the policy that we put forward and he's got to reflect and work back with us all the time. Mm, Bit of hiccup at the moment, but we'll sort that. Yes, because my observation of local councils is the mayor and the chief executive. The chief executive gets the mayor under his thumb or her thumb because they can be some female chief executives. And the chief executive has all the information, employs all the staff, controls the flow of information, and the mayor's busy out in the community cutting ribbons and kissing babies. And the chief executive has enormous power in the system, and the local councillors can be left in the dark. And you really have to make sure that that doesn't happen. And if your mayor is new, and we've got a new mayor now, and he's trying to stamp his mark on it, but we're not we're not where we should be. And it's how to make sure that everybody around that table is heading and working in the same direction and that you're resolving the issues out there in the public. And uh, one of the things that I'm quite passionate about, I'm not an engineer, but roading. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Give me a minister of transport who knows about roading. Do you know what this one has just done, did last year? And he decided one week that he would put a cycleway bridge across Auckland Harbour. That was the same week he took Tapuna to Mokoroa off the 10-year plan. It was meant to be four-laned by 2015. That's how far behind we are with roading development. Who is the Minister of Transport? Michael Woods. And there's something wrong with the NZTA. There's something wrong with Michael Woods. And there is something wrong with NZTA, right? Oh, it's sad, because prior to this uh, group coming in to uh, government, 1917, uh, 2017, we had such a good rapport with uh, the NZTA. Loved Adam Francis, a roading engineer, safety engineer. And take, for example, a place called Belk Road. And we had it all designed, met with the community, uh, he went away, had it designed. We checked it all, the group community, and I was there with them. And then it went to the regional council for approval. Well, to put on just over a metre onto a culvert, it ended up with the lawyers debating between themselves whether or not it would cause a dam or not. So we could get a, and all we wanted was a better left hand turn to get into Belk Road. Along comes the change of government, and they whipped that money out so fast. And when I spoke to the mayor, he said, oh, well, it's going to be closed anyway. Well, that's several years ago now. And so the people still uh, face threatened life and limb getting out and getting into that Belk Road. Mm. And it's one of the issues, Rodney, that really bugs me because you can make a planning decision like a roading roundabout down at the bottom for an industrial area that isn't really finally established. And in the meantime, people have got to be able to get in and off that road. And so it's fundamental that we continue with road safety needs. 
the I've got a meeting coming up in May and I've got all the intersections and the people who live off them to come and speak at the Kaimai Hall on the 18th of May. Unfortunately, it's budget night. I'm not sure if Simeon Brown can get, he's the opposition spokesman on transport. If There will be a change of government because we can't keep going the way we are. And, uh, and he would make a jolly good um, Minister of Transport, and he needs to understand what people have to contend with when they live in areas that's a heavy transport route. It hasn't had any, the only time you get intersection upgrade is when you work hard and actually lobby here, there and everywhere and to make it happen. Margaret Murray is not a person that you die wondering what they think on an issue. You're not a wallflower sitting in the back of the room, um, not letting anyone know what you think. And you're always researched and up to speed, and you speak your mind. You must have had a lot of conflict with councillors and with civil servants and even with you know your constituents. How do you handle the conflict of local body? Politics. I mean, the conflict, the interpersonal conflict that occurs over issues. Take when I was first elected after that amalgamation in 89 found me out. No home, no family, and no job. My children were all grown up and living away from home. Um, my marriage had broken, and John could not cope with a woman with a high public profile, although he was a captain on 737s. And so our marriage broke. And uh, I'll never forget that time. And then I, three years later, I'm back on the new city council. And John Gray, who was the chief exec at the time, uh, really didn't like this woman from Waimari. You knew that by the way he spoke um, that he didn't. And we had put money aside for a community school facility uh, in Waimari before we were wiped out. And by the time it came, Gray said it would never happen in his time. It didn't. But under Mike Richardson, the next uh, chief exec, by that time, we had enough money. And because we got interest rates on this a fund that we had, and we built the Aurora Performing Arts Centre. Now, it's beautiful, and it's a community school facility. I'm not sure how... Um, how much the community use it, but I do know that during the earthquake, it was the only facility that was available for use in Christchurch, mm -hmm. and it was heavily used. So recently, when I went back to Christchurch, and I'm with Don, my new partner, and we're driving down uh, Memorial Avenue, I could say to him, Don, these trees in the middle of the avenue, I was on council when we approved to grow those trees down that median strip and see that land just over there, which is on the corner Memorial Avenue and Rusley Road, still empty. Well, there's another story. I had, uh, uh, I had two people from Invercargill came to see me and they wanted to build a hotel there. And I said to them, well, I didn't know, uh, but what we would do is we would have an independent chairman uh, for the planning committee and let him make that decision. Remember, I was a United Councillor as well, and Tony Hearn was the one who approved it. Then it had to come to the United Council. And staff said to me there, Margaret, if that breaks, the commercial line comes across that Rusley Road, you are going to find the airport moving over here as well. And I voted against it. And I know that John Hannafin and Brian Shackles were really livid with me, but I believe that was the right thing at the time. And it really is a piece of land that should be a public park, really. So that's describing the conflict. How do you handle the conflict with people? Because you must have had a lot. Uh, since Don and I have been together, he's had a lot of uh, what do you call those big things that are about that size and they're tapes. And he had a box full of them and I had several. Well, being Don, he researched who could do it and he uh, found a couple in Nelson with a company and they've put them all onto little sticks. 
and I have the debate of Hamish Hay and myself debating amalgamation. I have the tape when um, the councillors put a vote of no confidence in me at Waimari. And I had two editorials done by both major parties, both in support of me. And of course, I didn't step aside. I had a couple of men away. And uh, so I, I um, played it for what it was and just gameplay, which it was. And ironically... The- so what you're saying is when you're in a conflict, because I think this is what puts a lot of women off politics, is the conflict. And I think men use it in politics to keep, you know, to win an argument. But I can see with you, just the way you describe it, and even me asking the question, you're not good at answering it because hmm. it doesn't bother you, does it? No. The conflict. Uh, I... you, you, you're quite unemotional about the conflict. And what you do is you say, okay, how am I going to win this? Would that be fair? Uh, how am I, what, what are my options now? So the previous mayor worked hard to get him into Western Bay. And then when he was elected and you go in to talk with your mayor as to what you might like to do, uh, he said to me, I'd like you to be deputy to um, this Mr. Mackay. And he said, I like the way he thinks. How don't I think? Said I. Well, he said, there you are in the paper. And it was a friend whose husband is a fisherman and the consultant that Tauranga City had employed to review and upgrade an area down by the harbour. And he would not speak to the independent commercial fisherman. And I went out and understood the issue, got it before Stuart Crosby, who was the mayor, and they had them round the table, but it was too close to the election and Stuart didn't follow through on it. Um, didn't do anything too close to the election. So anyway, I was so upset and I when I left the mayor's office, absolutely shattered, new council, and here I am, can't even give me a chairmanship, devastated. And I came out of that office, threw my arms around the committee clerk, Barbara, who happened to be in the corridor at that time, went home and thought to myself, Uh, Don sent me a a bunch of flowers telling me not all men are bastards. And I concluded to myself, you won't hold me down. I'm going to write letters to the paper. And that's what I do. And you'd be surprised at the people who read them. Mm, I bet. Well, it's it's a fascinating thing, Margaret, about... You can't shut people up. No. And they can't keep you down. You're like the energizer back battery you have encouraged a lot of people over your time to stand and a lot have stood a lot haven't um and a lot have gone on to have successful careers in local body politics what is the big what what's the barrier to people standing for local bodies why don't more people stand I think nobody encourages them. I think for a lot of people, they need to be tapped on the shoulder. Mm. You'd make a jolly good counsellor. You should be at our table. Mm. And you're not a bigot. And so this Tracy, this cockshead, uh, the latest girl that I've got onto council, will be really, really good. Mm. And she's learning her ropes as fast as she can. She said, I'm soaking it up like a sponge. Do you see yourself as her mentor? Oh, I'd like to think definitely. Mm. Definitely. And I'd happily be a mentor to anybody around that table, me and included, because they need it as well. Mm. And what do you say to encourage people listening to get involved in local politics? Because when I look at you, it's very clear to me that... There's Tracy Tracy Cox here now. Oh, she's ringing you. Mm. She might need some mentoring. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Can we put her on hold? Um. Where's my phone? I will put it on pause. Um, I'll ring her back when we finish. See, there you go. Well, this is real live radio, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. we were talking about you being a mentor to Tracy Cox. And when she rang, you would drop everything for her. Mm. And that's you, isn't it? Constituent rings, you drop everything for them. That's my job. 
It's your job. Um, and you're not at all arrogant about it, are you? I'd hate to think that I was. I, uh, I've got to know a lot of people who live in Tapuna who are involved in the Māori community, and I've met dear friends there, and unfortunately two of them have died. Bob Tai, originally from Christchurch, originally from here, went to Christchurch, married Maria Tate. I worked with Maria on the review of bringing the councils together, and she came to stay with us when Douglas and I lived out at Namuahini. And for a Bob, he was here and had quite an influence with, um, with his community. But take, for example, what happened not that long ago. I had met through community committee one Sue Titaki, lovely Māori warden, experienced, and I took her and Chimaima. Now, Chimaima was a security guard, knew all about the children that were having troubles in the library and round in that central city area in Tauranga. And I took them to meet with the chairman of the commission, and Tolly, and she had Chad Rolleston there as well. And so they listened to the two women. And the next time I went in, I said to the chair, we never heard from you. And she said, oh, we gave it to staff. And I thought, really? That's not what your job is. Your job is to pull people together and make, find out how you can improve the system. And I, we knew what the issues were. So, But the previous mayor got rid of the Safe City Committee, got rid of the Road Safety Committee, and it seemed as though anything I was involved with that he had to get rid of. Have you ever had aspirations for national politics? Oh, yes, I stood in 81. Hmm. I stood in 81 because Derek Quigley approached me and asked me if I would stand. And I'd, um, I had joined in the middle of uh, the 70s sometime when a young man knocked at our door and asked me if I'd like to donate to the party. And I said, no, but I'd like to join. Now, there were two issues, and I can't remember one of them, but I do remember the other. Norm Kirk was going to put a tax on women's makeup. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, that would get you into high dudgeon, Michael, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, anyway, so looking back on it, you think, I wonder what the other issue was. Yeah. I can't remember. You probably won that one. Well, did, the, did they have a tax makeup with the extra tax on? I can't remember. I'm sure you would have. And... um. And so I knocked on an awful lot of doors. You stood in 81, but... Yes, in a safe opposition seat of Mick Conley, and it was his last term. And I had the most fabulous uh, campaign committee, loved them all dearly, and they worked so hard. I had They had me in and out of Islington Freezing Works because Joe Ryan was the works manager, and they had 17 freezing works at that stage. And so there I am uh, looking at the... Uh, going through the, the, the operation and then back to speak to the men in the upstairs dining room. And I had left my notes over in the office and I had the helmet on and the, the gear. So I had to speak to these men with, um, just as I saw it, told them. And when I finished, the, uh, the trade union man followed me out. I think his name was Nayland Smith. Anyway, he was a hothead and he was really red. Derek Quigley had done something, but I can't remember what that was, <laughs> but they were really uptight. I said, I'll get Jim Bolger to come and speak to you. And he settled down. So I asked Jim Bolger and he opened my campaign. And as well as that, uh, the men started half an hour earlier at the Islington Freezing Works in order to hear us both. And you'd have laughed because at they clapped us, booed us both in and clapped us both out. How wonderful. And at some stage, Jim Bolger said, Mrs. Murray might like to say a few words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, I, um, when I got involved in politics, I, I, I hated the idea and I was sort of, um, and because I hated it, I decided to do it because I always think that if you're really scared of something, you should overcome the fear. And I stood. And I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed campaigning. And what I loved about campaigning is something that you never think of. It's actually hearing from people. And most people don't want you talking at them. 
And I learned that very quickly. They're not interested in what your policies are, but they're very interested in telling you what they think about the world and what their issues are. And they open up quite readily to a candidate. And I got to know so much about New Zealand, more than I'd ever learned before in just a brief campaign, because it's people coming up and talking to you. Right. I knocked on one door and I met that man, Mr. Clark. He was a principal at a local high school. And I met him just uh, two or three years ago when I went to a U3A meeting and he was there and he uh, said to me, oh, yes, I remember you, he said. You knocked on our door. Now, I didn't have a problem, but my son did. And he said, where else in the world could a son bike to a local hotel and have breakfast with the minister as my son did as a result of you knocking on my door? Isn't that wonderful? Mm. And that's a good place because I, when I stood in politics, I was scared of campaigning because I thought it was all about me. And I quickly realized it's all about listening and that a politician isn't about talking and knowing all the answers, that the key thing about being a politician is to be able to listen. And funny enough, it's a bit like I'm realizing on radio, it's when you're interviewing someone, the key thing is to listen, not talk. I'm going to keep working on that. (laughs) But um, that's why I never hesitate to encourage people to stand because I've never known someone to stand and not enjoy it. You know, they always enjoy it because they meet people you'd never otherwise meet. But you're left with little images and lots of lovely, lovely people. And my chairman of the campaign committee, Bob Methvin, he died at the end of it. And I was really quite brokenhearted. And he was such a fine man. And when you're looking ahead, you're going to stand at the next local body elections? Oh, I've been asked that twice. And I have to say that at my age, it will be... um, Oh, God, I can't tell you what I am. They used to say I was too young, and I'm not about to have anybody I'm telling me to, I'm too old. Look on you. Honestly, Rodney, they'll look for reasons as to why they can knock you out, and uh, you just got to make sure that you have an answer for them. And uh, so I, I just haven't made my mind up about that yet because I love what I do, and there's so much to be done, and when do you actually stop doing it? And I hate the thought that I leave local government in the position it's in at the moment. Mm. It is the finest place for decision-making that you can possibly have in any society. And all I find is that the left wing keep wanting to come up and knock us to pieces, centralise everything, and think that they've done a good job and put this remote distance between people and decision-making. It's mm. how to keep it local is the issue. Mm. They very much get lo- local politics, is, should be local politics, but we find that the bureaucrats and the politicians uh, in Wellington, they love shifting responsibility for what goes wrong down to the councils but they love taking all the power away from the councils and telling them what to do. And they do that under the thing of water quality or environmentalism or whatnot standards. And it must be very, very frustrating because you are the elected representative of your constituents and these central politicians have no contact with them. I was so disappointed with Stuart Crosby when he became president of the local government association. So when the three waters first started, he went, took, they took money, the association, from government not to criticize. And so the government had a key promoter of the three waters. And so because the local government New Zealand took money, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. This is hard to believe, right? So you have your local council that represents me and you and all our listeners and we vote and then they join local government New Zealand and fund it 
And that's where they can all meet and discuss areas of interest and learn from each other as local councils. And then right from the day dot, local government New Zealand, for money, they got paid by the central government, Mm -hmm. which is shocking in of itself. They took the money and they supported three waters. Yes. I mean, who the hell is this Stuart Cosby? Why would he do that? Well, he was mayor of Tauranga. Now he's on the regional council. And uh, it, I think it's a pretty embarrassing position that he finds himself in and he won't be there after June. But it's a tragedy because he had the power, he had the power to drive it and to make sure that the answer, the, some homework was done to actually make sure that local government was well informed on the subject. Whereas most of us have learned everything from the community and the work that everybody else has done. And so then you've got... Total dereliction of duty. Yes, and then you've got the um, the issue of the water regulator, and nobody's talking about that. And we just assumed, well, the health department wasn't doing a great job. Maybe if the um, water regulator is different, it might be better. But there's something that iwi and hapu will have unbridled power within that structure, and that's one that I've got to do some more work on. So what does it mean? For me, as a resident, three waters, because it's when I look at it, it seems all too complicated and my eyes sort of glaze over as people explain it to me. I know I'm against it, but why am I against it? You're against it because the ratepayers of your district funded everything that has gone into the water infrastructure, the stormwater infrastructure, and the sewerage infrastructure. It's billions of dollars. Yes, and it's going to go to these big entities that are all based on tribal boundaries, and there'll be 50% that are appointed and they uh, that aren't elected, and then 50% are from local government. How they're elected, I really don't know. Remains to be seen. And they will determine what should happen in Tapuna, for example, or anywhere else. I cannot see, and they will, in fact, um, they will, in fact, have power over other issues. Came up at council the other day. Well, if you control water, you control everything. That's right. And one of our staff members said, oh, well, if we're not doing the three waters, we'll have other roles that we will do. And my comment is, but you'll be expecting ratepayers to pay for the three waters, which they'll still be doing, and at the same time, pay for whatever else is put upon us, I don't think our ratepayers are going to buy that at all. Well, this is a big thing of local council. Those assets are owned by the local council. They get taken off the council. On behalf of the ratepayers. Yeah, get taken. Now, this 50%, 50% come out of the existing councils. We don't know how. Where do the other 50% come from? They're appointed by the Iwis. By the Iwis? Yes. Not by by the central government? No, by Iwi. And they, um, but but I don't have any vote on who runs the iwi. That's the problem, and I don't mind who stands for local government, what ethnicity they are, but they've got to be elected. You cannot have a system where you have part elected and part appointed. That was the poor thing that poor Jacinda couldn't get her head around. That uh, it's really fundamental in a so. democracy for people who are elected because they're then answerable to people. So the stormwater, the sewage, and the drinking water, billions of dollars of assets, and the control of which controls the entire city or the entire district, and also all future development, Mm -hmm. that's going to be shifted to an entity outside the council, be gifted to this new entity, which is set up on tribal lines, and 50% of the people that control that entity are appointed from the local iwi. I don't know how else they can be appointed. Oh, my goodness me. So they can set water prices. They can say, no, that can't be developed. No, you can't have water this day. There's water rationing. They they, they might invest in the infrastructure that we need. Mm -hmm. This is a recipe for disaster and racial further racial tension, I would have thought. Oh, the huge divide that is being put upon us. And it's so unnecessary because people work together and they work together well. 
And so to try and put structures that divide us, and that's what I can never give forgive Jacinda for. Never. And Hipkins is no better. Worse. You've divided us, and you. what right did you have to do that? Am I allowed to add a little commentary about how much I dislike them? Mm, of course you can. Because <laughs> I really, really dislike them, what they've done to this beautiful country. Oh, I despair. The division. And, I mean, it was coming. It's been um, successive governments have divided us and turned us against each other, and which is a very bitter thing to see. And But with this Jacinda in charge, the division is unbelievable that's created in the world that our kids are going to inherit as a consequence of this. Well, it looks dark, doesn't it? It looks very dark. It looks like it's... And, of course, the other problem that we that I have is it's all backward-looking. Like, no society and no, no individual person can succeed without looking forward. And I don't see the looking forward now. No. It's all looking back, oh, well, this was this tribe, and the tribe did this, and this happened, and it was bad, and, oh, no, we've got to put that right, because this was bad. And you're thinking, no, no, actually... What we've got to do is feed and house ourselves and be productive and succeed in the world for ourselves and for our children. And you do that by looking forward and getting along and getting on. And we can't get on because we're constantly being pulled back by history. Uh, and I think that there's a desire to make us all feel guilty somehow mm. and that our children have got to pay for the sins of the past, mm. whatever those sins might or might not have been. Mm. And I take, for example, internal affairs. And before, prior to 7, 2017, you had internal affairs and we had Makatu where we needed to put a sewage scheme into. And we were able to get a apply and get a 10 or 12 million dollars from the internal affairs which enabled us to put sewage into makatu on a basis that people could afford to pay for it so with the help of taxpayer and remember taxes uh, government takes a lot more in taxes than what we take and they don't share it and they used to do it a bit but anyway we got the sewage scheme into makatu because taxpayer and ratepayer helped to make it happen. That's the way society should work, because instead of the whole election process for general election is, how much can I take from everybody else so I can give you more? Mm. In local government is, how can you control your spending so I'm not paying more than I should? Mm. And total different philosophy. And I don't know how people can be so conned. Mm. Well, because rates, you feel rates, you've got to write the check, right? Mm -hmm. And then the tax that central government gets cleverly, they is invisible. You're not even allowed to write how much GST is on your grocery sort of thing as you're buying them. It's hidden. And then your PAYE, it's taken before you even get a get get your wage. And when you ask them and what they get, they always talk about what they get in their hand. And people do not have a clue how much tax they're paying to central government. It's it's shocking. Oh no, how it's spent. Oh no, how it's spent. And I mean, and how boy, when I turned up the parliament in 1996, I um they were building a parliamentary, we dubbed it the Parliamentary Palace, and we stopped it. And um, Don McKinnon was sent to explain to me how this wasn't a big deal and to calm me down. And he sat down with me and he says, look, Rodney, you know, you're a new MP and, you know, you don't understand things. And he said, you know, this this so-called parliamentary palace, the new executive wing, it's only going to cost $100 million. And I said to him, well, I don't know about that, Don, but I know this. $100 is a lot of money. And a million people is a lot of people. And that's $100 off a million people. It sounds like a lot to me. But to these politicians sitting there, 100 million here, 500 million here, a billion here, 2 billion here, 3 billion here, they have no clue of what that actually means in real terms because the numbers are so big. 
In fact, I discovered that central politicians can only understand little numbers. So if you're talking about $500, they could spend all day debating that. But if you're talking about 500 million, that was just too big to comprehend. They just tick the box. And we've seen Jacinda Ardern and this government just squander billions and billions and billions of dollars. And you know, and I know, and our listeners know that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will be paying for this government. I think what really alarms me is how fast our standard of living is dropping. Mm. used to be fourth highest in the world. Look where we are now, mm. and we're slippery slope, mm. and they don't seem to want to change it. Well, you've got a woman that's had a big impact on uh, local body politics for a long, long time. I was trying to do the sum of how far away 1977 was. And not I saw that it, long. Not that long, but that's a long time to be in local politics. Admittedly, you've been in and out a bit. But it's a great encouragement to listeners to next time, if anyone taps you on your shoulder, don't coyly say no. Say, oh, that sounds interesting. And think about standing because you'll learn a lot in standing. You'll learn a lot being on the council. And there's no doubt you become a better person because there's no better person I know than Margaret Murray Bench. She is absolutely wonderful. And, um, well, I support you, Margaret. And um, I'll support whatever choice you make. And if you do decide to keep continuing in politics, I'll be there supporting you. Uh, that was, thank you for coming along. My pleasure. That was Margaret Murray Benj, an absolute legend in local body politics, an amazing woman, a very, very fine lady. It's a great privilege to have her come on the show, in fact, and to be in her house and interview her. And I hope you enjoyed that for the little bit of insight of local body politics, why it's important, why you should stand, and what it was like back in the day in 1977, and to think that you're still here in politics in 2023. That's wonderful. You with Reality Check Radio, you're listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.